listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. I was scrolling through Facebook uh, a little while ago, and I saw an ad for a company called Cooper Cheese. So I sent them a message. I said, you're Cooper Cheese. I'm Cooper Talk. Why don't you send me a t-shirt or something? So they sent me this great t-shirt. I got it this weekend. It says, have no fear. Cooper's here. So if you're out there looking for cheese... Go to coopercheese.com. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have such an excellent actor, and um, he actually premieres today his um, his short that's been getting great, great awards uh, all over the country. Uh, the movie's called Too Dumb Mix, and my guest is D.B. Sweeney. How you doing, D.B.? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I got I, So I was looking through, where did the idea come for this movie? Because it's a short, and you know, you've had such a great career, and you've directed and written a feature a, full feature before what how did this arise i got two teenagers uh, a senior 18 year old uh, and a uh, sophomore who's about to turn 16 and i've just been watching their viewing habits and you know i they, even if they watch a movie uh like they have great taste in movies but if they watch it they kind of watch it in 10 10 minute or 20 minute bites and i just thought well that's interesting that you know when i was a kid i used to just sit down and watch the whole movie or whatever was on i'd watch it and they feel like they have more, you know, I think they like their time and their entertainment a little bit more compartmentalized. And I'm not the first person to observe this, of course, because Quibi, the, the short content server, is launching this month. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely an evolution of viewing habits. So I thought that's kind of interesting because that's how movies started, you know, with the one real comedies. Back in the day, they were about 10, 11 minutes long, and that was about the, the limits of the technical capability of a projector. So you couldn't show any more film than that without changing the projector which made it kind of a you know uh, it was a at the retail level it made it very difficult that's why we had nickelodeons and so forth where they you'd play a 10 minute one real comedy and i thought that's kind of cool that we kind of go back to the beginning of you were evolving back to the origins of movies and i wanted to see if i could sort of reinvent the laurel and hardy abbott and costello type one realer comedy now how did you go about Getting the writing the process, and I know you casted Sean Astin, who you worked with before. But when you sat down as someone who's in this series, you know, in TV and movies, when you had to formulate a story in such a short time, is that was that tough for you? It is. You know, it's it's a different format, and of course, Laurel Hardy and Abbott Costello were not part of the one real evolution of movies. That was more Buster Keaton, Patty Arbuckle, other people. So I'm not conflating the two years. I I suppose what I meant to say was that Abbott and Costello inspired version of a one reeler a more accurate way to say it. But, I, yeah, you, you know, the storytelling is a challenge because in, in a feature, you know, the traditional thing they teach is that you have to have your inciting incident, in other words, the thing that triggers the, uh, the big events of the story, within about 17 or 18 minutes. If you don't have it by then, you're going to lose your audience or you're not going to have time to resolve everything. So that's kind of classic feature screenwriting. In a short, you kind of need to have your inciting incident, as it were, in about a minute or less. So... Uh, you know, these two characters, they meet in a jail cell and they come up with a plan almost immediately. So that, that's kind of, it lends itself to comedy because real life doesn't really work that way. But in the same sense that like in a Roadrunner and Coyote cartoon, you sort of get, we get the whole setup. The, the Coyote's really trying to eat this Roadrunner and he's never going to catch it. But in this particular episode, here's what the Coyote's plan is. And I feel like that kind of classic comedic structure lends itself to some really good situations, and that's what we're going to hope to to, uh, hear if we turn this into a series, which it looks like we're going to. Now, how did you approach Sean to do it? Sean and I were in Memphis Bell way back in 1990, and we had just a great experience uh, four months over in England. Um, We just became really good pals, and and at that time, that was about my fifth movie or something, and I just thought, wow, this is Hollywood. We, We get along great, and so we'll end up making a movie every four or five years together, and that never happened. It's just the way things go that sometimes you, you, you know, like Virginia Madsen, somebody I worked with early on, I got to work with her a couple of other times. Um, John C. McGinley is somebody I've worked with a few times. So, you know, there are people that you, you know, that you, that you do work with again, but it doesn't just naturally occur. So I, I'd run into Sean every, every so often and I'd say, we got to do something. And it just never came to pass. So I decided I'm just going to make it happen. And uh, I reached out to him. He loved the idea. He loved the character. And he had the greatest quote ever. He said, uh, he said, I love the idea of us being a comedy duo. He said, every comedy duo has a has a tall guy and a fat guy. And I know who I am. <laughs> so now when you started shooting it, how long did it take for you to shoot the movie? Uh, we shot it over a period of an extreme, one extremely long day. Um, uh, I guess it was about a, 
I don't know, an 18-hour day, and then pick ups the next day. So we pretty much shot in one weekend, but then there's visual effects, there's uh, uh, coloring, there's, it's almost as much work to, to uh, you know, finish a short movie as a regular movie. You know, had to get by the music, had to, um, you know, arrange for all the uh, delivery and everything like that. So it's, it's, it was definitely a big project, but the shooting itself was, was pretty limited because I, we had the script, Sean was ready to go, he was memorized, I was memorized. And uh, we just hit the ground running, and thanks to, uh, to the people, my buddies produced the TV show SWAT on CBS, and they gave us a lot of support. The jail cell is from the SWAT set, and, you know, when you have stuff like that, it, it makes your movie look much bigger than it is. Now, when did you decide to start putting it in festivals? Because you had some really, you had some good uh, run with that. You were getting some good uh, best comedy, best movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's over 50 awards and nominations now, which is kind of astonishing. I, I first, I thought, I just wanted to see, you know, you, when, you, when you write something and you direct it and you're in it, that's a lot of hats to be wearing. So I was just kind of second-guessing whether, and I showed it to some good friends of mine, and they were like, this is hilarious. But I just wanted to make sure that a wide range of audiences liked it, and I just, I figured I'd use the film festivals as kind of a market research, and I'd go to as many as I could and watch audiences watch it, and try to learn about what part of it they thought was funny. And I did learn a lot because it's, you know, when everybody sees it on Wednesday at 7 o'clock on Facebook, um, the premiere, it, the first half of it is in uh, a jail cell, and the second half of it is in another location. I don't want to blow it for anybody who hasn't seen it. And uh, and so it, it, the, I thought the second half of it was the best part of it. And a lot of people who have seen it in the film festivals, they want more of the first part. And it's just kind of interesting to me that, you know, that was not my – I wanted to get to the second part as quickly as possible – through the setup of the first part, but the feedback I've been getting is that people just love the banter in the first part, and they could sit, stay with that all day. So future episodes are definitely going to lean even more heavily on the banter. Now, how long is it? It's four minutes. This one is four minutes and forty-four seconds, which uh, is a little shorter than the future episodes are going to. The future episodes are probably going to be about seven, seven and a half minutes. I was operating off kind of bad information in a way that we're a year ago when I cut this thing together. Uh, less than a year ago. Um, when I cut it together, people were saying that the, the sweet spot is five minutes for short content on the internet, and if you decide you want to do something with it later, that's where you want to be. The truth of the matter is that the sweet spot is really about you know seven to nine minutes. So we're going to, you know, I actually chopped this down. There were, there were really funny gags that I cut out of it to get shorter, and I wish that now I hadn't done that. Now, it must be, uh, just for you, it must be very cool because you've been in the business for so long, and now to sit there and just be able to put something out on Facebook or YouTube where people can instantly see it. It's really cool, and, and uh, especially for a comedy, this short uh, format that's available to us now is really, it's, it's, it's a godsend because it's hard to make a feature-length comedy that's funny the whole time. I mean, for every, there's something about Mary or these you know movies that really work really well, there's so many comedies that, to me, that just aren't funny, or they have a few laughs, and, you know, I mean, a lot of Jonah Hill movies and these other movies that everybody, you know, thinks are so hilarious, I'm like, I'm thinking there's an awful long gap in between the gags that are funny, and uh, so I, I feel like the short format thing is going to be really good for audiences, because you don't have to worry so much about sustaining the comedic plot line as you do of servicing the gags. Now... You've been in so many great movies and TV shows. And uh, how did you get into acting? You know, I, I was a baseball player, and I went to college to play baseball, got injured, and went back. It was in New Orleans, and I went back home to New York, where I'm from. And I, my dad was a guidance counselor. He was like, "Wow, well, you can't. You gotta go. You gotta be in college. You're gonna be a bum." And so I was like, uh, my sister was at NYU, New York University. So I was like, "Well, I'll go there." And I had done a play as a, as a senior in high school, and I was people said I was okay at it. So. I thought, well, I'll just do that, but I, it wasn't like I'm going to do that for my life. It was like I'm going to do that, like people get a backpack and go to Europe. You know, it wasn't like a career plan. It was sort of like a kill time plan. And I also mistakenly thought that there wasn't a lot of work involved, and that there'd be a lot of pretty girls. I was right about the second part, but <laughs> I was wrong about the the work part. Anyway, it was I just got into it, and I, I you know, I really enjoyed it. And um, ironically, to where I am now with doing all these different jobs on these shorts is. Uh, I couldn't get a part at, at NYU in a play, so I had to figure out how to do plays myself with my friends, the other broken toys that couldn't get cast in the in the plays, the official plays. So I found a room at NYU that nobody was using and turned it into a little 60-seat theater, and we started doing plays. And then we started trying to figure out how to invite agents and how to invite well, casting directors. This is all while we were still undergraduates at NYU. And 
during my junior year, uh, somebody came, an agent came and signed me. It's like, oh, okay. And they started sending me on auditions. And, you know, one thing led to another. I got a TV commercial. I got a Broadway play. And then I finally, Francis Ford Coppola hired me to be in Gardens of Stone, as the starring role. And, and then I was off and running. I mean, just him hiring me before the movie came out, I was getting offered movies. So I, I worked very hard for a short period of time, but fortune smiled on me quickly. Now, I, I saw you posted something on Facebook. I guess it was it was a beer commercial you did. What, what commercial was that? Uh, Bud Light. I was the voice of Bud Light. The best job I ever had in my life was being the voice of Bud Light. And I had that job for 11 years, and I'm just a voiceover guy. All I say is, for the great taste, it won't fill you up. and never lets you down. Make it a Bud Light. And they put that on over 150 commercials, and I'd get paid every time they showed any of these commercials <laughs> for 10 years. And in addition to that... Bud Light, at the Super Bowl, at the NBA All-Star Game, every sporting event, Bud Light has like a thousand seats that they give to their you know best customers, the distributors or whoever. And they'd always invite me to come to these events for free. And sometimes they'd pay me. And I was like, man, this is, I, I died and went to heaven. This is the greatest thing ever. So uh, the one commercial that I put on the internet was one with Cedric the Entertainer that was on during the Super Bowl. And it's just a funny commercial. So I just, I'm trying to have a more active presence, you know, with my social media and all that stuff. So I just thought, here's a funny thing to put out there, and people people love that commercial. Now, you said you had played um, baseball. You're a good, you're, but you went to Tulane, right, where you played baseball? Yes. Did that help you get the role in Eight Men Out? Uh, I think it did. I mean, I, I, I certainly John Sales, uh, the director and writer, he knew, uh, he was trying to find actors who had played. And uh, he told the story after we met uh, in New York City on like 12th Avenue, uh, 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 42nd Street and 12th or 11th Avenue. It was way west when that was a really crappy area in the 80s. And he was just sitting uh, at a a bus stop and watching to see, because he didn't know me. And we were supposed to meet in this diner. And he said he decided I was the guy as I walked up. And later he told somebody else uh, that got back to me. He said, said, I wanted him the second he walked up. He said, because you walk like a ball player. And I thought that was kind of cool. And, and then we, we just had breakfast and talked about my favorite player. Uh, it wasn't, I was a Red Sox fan, but my favorite non-Red Sox player of all time was Roberto Clemente. And sales like Roberto Clemente, too. So I, I just felt like Shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, he had the, there's really no video of him playing the outfield, but people who talk about the way he played, it, it evokes to me the way Clemente played, which was just this incredible grace that he used to glide, you know, uh, and, and just make really... Effective plays, but beautiful plays. I remember Clemente. I grew up being a Phillies fan back when the Phillies stunk. We're around the same age. And I remember, I still remember that baseball card, Roberto Clemente, where he's looking down. I don't know what year it is, a tops card, and he's throwing the ball up. And I still remember that card, and he was such yeah. an amazing player. Beautiful player. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny how, even when people talk about, you know, the greatest baseball players of all time, it's funny how his name kind of doesn't really make the list of like the top 15 or top 20. And I, I think he should be right in there. And he probably lost three seasons of playing. He had 3,000 hits, but he plays another three seasons. He would have 3,500 hits. And then he's in the top, you know, whatever, 10 hit, hit total of all time. I don't know. It's just, it is what it is. He died in that tragic charitable um, mission that he was on. Um, and, you know, he's just one of the great, great athletes of our of the last century, I think. Now, what was it like playing a true life, I mean, Joe Jackson was a great player. What was it like playing someone like that? Because, you know, as you said, you really couldn't do much research because there wasn't a lot of film. Did you just, like, read up the stats, or what did you do? Well, I went to, uh, I had a lot of time because when I met Sales, uh, I guess I met him in about March, and the movie was going to film in October, so I had a lot of time. And I said to Sales, I, look, I'm a right-handed hitter, I'm a good hitter, but I can't, I don't think I can hit lefty well enough. Maybe we can do what they did in Pride of the Yankees, which was they, they had Gary Cooper was such a poor baseball player that he could barely swing right-handed. So, But everybody in that era knew that Lou Gehrig was a lefty. So so Gary Cooper, they, they switched. They turned the Yankee logo inside out on his jersey and backwards. And they had him swing righty and run to third base and pretend that it was – and then they flipped the negative of the film to make it look like he just hit a single. So that was very expensive to do even back in the Pride of the Yankees days. And sales said, we don't have the money to do that, so if you can't do it lefty, we'll just have you hit righty, and you know people will just have to live with it. And I was like, no, that's no good. So I spent six months, including two months, the last two months with the Kenosha Twins in the Midwest League, uh, A-ball, you know, a minor league team for the Minnesota Twins. And I, I really worked it and honed it and, and, and uh, nailed down a really good, I thought, left-handed swing that was correct for the period, you know, which was you know, very different than what, the way baseball players were swinging the bat in the 1980s. 
And uh, so that was the physical side of it, because I thought the whole key to Shoeless Joe Jackson was his swing. Uh, the one legend is that Babe Ruth copied his swing, which I turned out not to be exactly true. They were just friends, and Babe Ruth admired him. Um, but I went to, the, uh, for the uh, knowledge side, I went to the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. It has a library that's not open to the public. It's like a research facility, and I reached out to the guy that was there. And I spent about three days pouring through all the sports pages of the era, and it was amazing. You know, and now you can just go on the internet and find a lot of this stuff. But then, you know, they had the resources there, and it was you had to actually pour through these books and compilations of articles and microfilm and all this stuff. So it was really fun. And what I found out was Joe Jackson was no different than a lot of other players. The legend that the, that the White Sox were the only team gambling is a myth. Um, the gambling was so widespread in baseball. Every player was doing it. In general, they'd have a four-game series, and if um, if the, and, and it actually created audience interest because the audiences all knew. That, I mean, the, the fans all knew that the games were dirty. So generally, you'd have a four-game series, and both teams would try to win the first two games. If one team won the first two games, the third game was usually in play, one way or the other. It was arranged, and then depending on the outcome of that game, the fourth game of the series would also be arranged or not. So. Fans were not being hoodwinked the way it's shown in Eight Men Out. I mean, they, they, everybody was in on it. It was widespread, and, uh, you know, it was just something the players did to supplement their income. Now, that movie does well. You know, it's got good acclaim. Does that really kickstart your career? I mean, you already were in a few movies, but then you just go on a, you look on IMDb, you just go on a tear. You get Lonesome Dove. You get Memphis Bell. What Were you getting offers, or were you had to audition at that point? Um, well, Memphis Bell was a great story because right after Francis Coppola hired me in Gardens of Stone, I went over to England because I had this idea for a movie about the founders of Greenpeace. And the, this guy named Rick Stevenson, who was running Robert Redford's film company at the time, was over in England um, uh, at this film festival. And I went over there to try to work with him and, and get this movie going. You know, it was pretty uh, aggressive. You know, I had one movie under my belt, and here I am trying to produce another movie. But I just thought I'll go to England, I'll try and do it. Rick got way too busy to do it at that point, running Redford's thing. And uh, so I just would, I hung out. I was at the film festival for four days, and one of the guys that I met there was Michael Caton Jones, who at that point in 1986 or 87, whatever this was, he was just kind of like trying to make it as a film director. And he was kind of unknown. And the next year, the movie Scandal came out, which made him kind of a very hot commodity as a director. And so he came to Hollywood to make Memphis Bell, and he he walked in town and basically, you know, there's 10 young guys in Memphis Bell. And he said, uh, you know, everybody wanted to be in that movie. And Michael Keaton Jones said, uh, you can't cast any roles until I figure out which role D.B. Sweeney wants to play because he can pick. And nobody's ever said that to me before or since. So that was kind of a great thing. I obviously didn't have to audition for that one. And But yeah, generally speaking, I was getting offered a lot of things there in the, at the end of the 80s and into the uh, 90s. And, uh, you know, for I, I had very good fortune because Mr. Coppola hired me and then you know, I had a few movies that people really liked, and then Cutting Edge kind of blew up. So, you know, there was it was it was a good period for me. Now, Cutting Edge. Well, first of all, Memphis Bell. How was it shooting with all those young guys? We had a great time. You know, uh, uh, Michael Caton Jones asked me to. Harry Connick Jr. was was very hot because he did the soundtrack for When Harry Met Sally, and he'd never been in a movie. So Michael Caton Jones said, "Hey, would you?" meet with this this young guy and uh, uh and I, I knew he was from new orleans i'd heard of him and uh since i went to college in new orleans we had that common so michael said you guys hang out and harry and i became fast friends and we ended up sharing a house together um uh just off king's uh where was it sloan square in london and you know harry's a genius piano player so our we had the big house with a piano and we you know after work everybody come over and we'd have parties three nights a week in our in our house and all of london uh Film Society was hanging out in our house. It was really a great, great experience. Not to mention the movie itself. Having the, we had six actual B-17s flying in the air every day, and twelve fighter planes. So it was an incredible, incredible movie. Right at the end of the era when all that stuff was real, you know, before computer-generated effects became believable enough that you could dispatch with all the real planes. Now, The Cutting Edge was a big hit. Did you had you had had you played hockey before, or what? How'd that come about? No, I never skated, but, you know, because, it, it, you know, I guess at that point it was a couple of years after Eight Men Out and the story of how I learned to hit left-handed so believably was widely known. So, you know, I think that they felt like, well, he could do that. He could probably learn to skate. And I had never skated. And it was, it was a great opportunity because they had three months and Maura Kelly was hired and she had never skated. So we each, we had three months to learn. 
and we both went to the same rink and I was living in Manhattan. She was living in Long Island where she's from, where we're both from. And every morning we'd meet at the rink and train. So it was like we both learned to skate together and it was just, it was just a great organic kind of character rehearsal. Like she, you know, obviously we both know the script that we're about to do. So we're looking for aspects of our own personalities that, that apply to the characters. So we just basically started competing with each other and breaking each other's chops. And, and uh, it just, by the time we got to the set, we were sort of finishing each other's sentences and we just had a, a great rapport. And she's such a talented actress that, you know, because she's a really nice person and she's very different than the character in that movie. That's why when people, after they see that movie, they're like, oh my gosh, she must be such a, you know, rhymes with witch. And uh, it's, she's not, she's like, she's a sweetheart. Now, that so did you ever take some really bad spills when you were uh, shooting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, that script we had was unbelievable from Tony Gilroy, who, who's gone on to write Born Identity. He's one of the best writers in, in Hollywood. If you look at his credits, I mean, he's unbelievable. That was his first script. And, you know, you didn't have to do anything to that script, which is so unusual. Most movies, you can figure out one place where there's a line or two. And some movies need massive help from the actors. Um, but this movie was so well written. The only thing that I was able to contribute was um, there's one scene where I'm having dinner and I have these ice bags on my hips um, because Tony wanted to show, and the director, Paul Mark Glazer, wanted to show where, where you get banged up the most in training. And for me, it was on the right on the hip bones because you know you, when you fall on your butt or you fall, you break your fall with your elbows, you have gloves on or whatever, it's, uh, you know, you, you don't take as hard of a hit, but when you land on that hip bone, it, it, you get a bone bruise that just doesn't heal, and then you land on it again a few days later, so that was my contribution with the ice bags on the hip bones. Now, then after that, you go on a run and you do a lot of TV. What was it like getting a series for you? Because you have it in movies, but when you're in a series, it's like you ha you know where you're going every day. You have the, the you know, the, you, the same people. Your first, what was your first series that you were regular on? Well, I, I wasn't a writer. I was, I was an regular. actor on Strange Luck. No, and, a regular. And, uh, on, on Strange Luck, it was kind of a weird situation because I was coming out of a bunch of hit movies. And Brandon Tartikoff at the time ran a company called New World, which had a deal with Fox. And he came to me and pitched me. He was like, I want you to do this TV show. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I, thought, I felt like I knew scripts. So I said, I'll do it, but there's these things that are wrong with the script. And as long as you guys will work on rewriting these things, uh, these four particular scenes that I, and I said, here's what I think is wrong with this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene. Do you guys agree? If you agree, let's fix it and do it. They all agreed and they said, we'll fix it. So I get there and they haven't fixed it. And in fact, the guy, the head writer, whose name I'm not going to say, he said, I'm not fixing it. That's the way we're doing it. And I just, I, you know, I called up Brandon. I said, hey, listen, remember, remember the meeting we had? And I wasn't stupid. I had everybody kind of sign off on it and say, these are the four scenes we're going to fix. And so they didn't, he, he wouldn't do it. I was like, okay. So the, Brandon said, do you know what to do? And I said, yeah. And so I rewrote these four scenes and the show was great. The pilot episode was unbelievable. We got picked up. So we get down to, uh, we're, we're shot the pilot in LA. We go to uh, Vancouver to shoot the series. And one of the scenes I rewrote, actually Fox insisted that the character in that scene, which had now beefed up, Cynthia Martell, that she be a series regular. That's how much they liked that scene that I wrote. So I was like, okay, great. Here we are. We're, we're off and running. I get my first script in the series from this head writer, and it's it's basically uh, the character that I played in the show is a photographer, right? So like a, a photojournalist. The first episode, he's assigned to take pictures of a spoiled brat actor that rewrites all his own lines. And I thought, <laughs> so I read this script, and I'm like, I, th I, I laughed my head off. I thought that's the greatest prank of all time to actually go and generate a script like that. And, and I was like, I thought, oh, I love this guy. That, um, yeah, we're even. That's great. I know it was a little rocky there on the pilot, but, you know, we're even. It's great. He wasn't kidding. That was the script he wanted to do. So I, so I, I was like, really? Is that what you want to say after you got your show picked up and everything? Okay. So it was, it was a rocky relationship, to say the least. He wasn't equipped to run a show, so he was fired after about five episodes, not just because of me, just because he couldn't, he just couldn't deliver scripts and he couldn't, you know, he just wasn't, he wasn't agile enough to, to make it happen. So they brought in some other guys, but then the show, just after 17 episodes, Fox just kind of quit on it. And uh, we were the lead into the X-Files, right? The X-Files was exploding. And we had the highest ratings on Friday night uh, for any show in the history of Fox that wasn't called The X-Files. So I think they probably regretted it after they did it. But it was an eye-opener for me because, you you know, an hour of TV is about 42 minutes of content, you know, 18 minutes of commercials, whatever the, whatever the number is, something like that. So you got to do a 42-minute movie in about eight working days. So it's, it's very, it's a different tempo 
and uh, it was a bit of a shock to me, but I, I liked it because, you know, you make a choice, make a decision, and then uh, film it. Now, did you like to, when you're going back and forth, I know acting is acting and you love to do your crap, but what did you prefer at that point in your life, being on a TV set or being on a movie set? Well, I mean, I, I've done five TV pilots and four of them got picked up, which is a high number. None of them got out of the first year. So this is my caveat is if you get into the fourth or fifth year of a TV show, you're going to make a lot of money. And I have friends who have done that. And, you know, my friend Joe Mantegna just finished Criminal Minds. You know, he did 13 years, I think. So you, you get very, you make a lot of money. And so I think I could live with that. And when I did Two and a Half Men, I think John Cryer was making a million dollars an episode or something. And that, that's a lot of money. So hit TV shows are life-changing. The great thing about movies is, well, if you're The Rock or somebody, you, you, you get rich and, and the movies end. But for, for everybody else, a, a movie shoots in you know six weeks to three months whatever the case may be a marvel movie might be six months but you're probably not on it the whole time so but a movie ends you, you the, the light at the end of the tunnel is built in tv series is like you know eight months out of the year and it's you know if it's not working or whatever it's a, it's a long time and and uh, you know they're just they're just kind of different animals I, I think if you have good partners and good bosses and good co-stars and good scripts it doesn't matter to me which one it is. I just I just want to have a good script and a good situation to play. Now, how do you bounce back? I mean, as an actor, you said, you know, four out of five pilots, which, yeah, that is amazing. That's a great 80% of pilots getting picked up is awesome. But how do you how do you jump bounce back when you go into a series, you put your all into it, and then it doesn't come back after the first season? Does that get a little monotonous to you? Like, you, you get pissed off? When, what, what What's going wrong? Well, I, you know, I was, I was learning it, uh, you understand it backwards, but I was learning it forwards back then, and, and each time we got our show picked up, it was like good news, bad news, like, okay, you're picked up, that's the good news, the bad news is on, you're on Friday night at 8 o'clock, okay, you got picked up, that's the good news, the bad news is your opposite uh, ER, you know, at 9 o'clock or whatever, Thursday night, whatever night that was, so, you know, it, it, back then, the time slot you got was life or death. Now, with DVRs and everything like that, you can survive a bad time slot because people can tape your show and look at it later. Where They can tape your show while they're watching ER and then look at you the other day, and those will all be counted in, in the ratings. So, it, yeah, but it, it was, to answer your question, very frustrating, and I felt like especially uh, we did this show, Harsh Realm, also for Fox. It's a phenomenal show. Terry O'Quinn's in it from also in The Cutting Edge and Lost, and uh, Chris Carter, the guy behind The X-Files, did it, and it was just a great show. And we were unfortunately canceled because Chris Carter and Fox were negotiating the fate of, I guess, the eighth season of, of X-Files. And uh, Chris Carter and Rupert Murdoch were very far apart on the price for the eighth, eighth season. And Rupert Murdoch said, okay, are we negotiating or are we not negotiating? Your harsh realm is canceled. Now you want to give me a real number. It literally, Chris told me the story that it literally went like that. Like he, it's almost like he knocked over a chess piece. And it was 200 people's jobs. We had this great show that it was really starting to build momentum. People were loving it, and it was a little bit like The Matrix, but we were out before The Matrix, so we would have, you know, it, I think the show really could have had a life. It was like a computer uh, virtual uh, reality training simulator for the military, and it was it's a really a great show. It's available on DVD. Unlike Strange Luck is not available. I don't know why Fox never put that out, but um, but The Harsh Realm. There's nine episodes. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, we had so many great people come through there and be guests on that show, and uh, um, Michelle uh, uh, McLaren, who became has become a really big director on you know Better Call Saul and uh, Game of Thrones, and you know uh, she's become one of the great TV directors now. She did her first episode was uh, was on Harsh Realm, so you know we had a lot of talent come through. That was a great show. So that was especially disappointing. Well, now through your career, you know you've gotten to work with a lot of great actors, and you've been involved, and I'm sure. You directed a movie and wrote a movie, you co-wrote the movie, Two Tickets to Paradise. Did you, how did you come about directing it? Were you, when you were on, when you were on set, were you always absorbing what the director was doing? Yeah, yeah, all the time. And, and uh, you know, Francis Coppola from uh, my very first leading role, um, he sort of, he knew I came from theater. I'd done 25 plays or whatever the case was at that point and uh, he knew that I had directed a lot of plays and, and he was trying to you know, bring me in because it was, I was obviously, he was trying to give me confidence I think because I'm the main, main character with very little experience opposite James Caan and Angelica Houston and James Earl Jones and you know he knew I was in a, a, like a murderer's row of actors and there's a lot of pressure so I think to build up my confidence he got me involved in rewriting that movie and he was asking my opinion and he was 
you know, and I, I don't think he was just, it was all about building my confidence. I think he, he thought I had good opinions. So it gave me confidence to voice my opinions on, on later um, projects. And, you know, sometimes they want to hear from you and sometimes they don't. But I developed over a, over a period of years, you know, at least a good taste as to what, what has a better chance of working. And, uh, you know, the other thing is I, I feel like, you know, we should just try a, another way to do it. Just keep going. Because a lot of times you're on a set and they do like take 10 and the other actors are doing the exact same thing that they did in take three. It's like, why, why are we doing seven more takes? It's the same thing. So uh, that kind of attitude led me into, well, we could have, I could have gone over some of these ideas earlier with the writers and then maybe we could have picked a better one than the one that got picked in the in the script that we're shooting today. And so I got involved a little bit on that level and then I started writing feature scripts. And Two Tickets to Paradise was just, uh, a lot of people wanted to make the movie, but they wanted to, they didn't want me to be a producer and be in control and so forth. So I kind of, I was a little too stubborn on that movie. And there were only two directors that I wanted and they both turned it down. The first one was Ron Shelton, the director, Bull Durham. I thought he was a great director, a great guy's director. And uh, he had just finished a couple of movies that hadn't done well. And he said to me, Davey, I can't do this $2 million movie. Otherwise, people in Hollywood will say, I can't get a big movie. <laughs> so <laughs> at least he was honest about it, uncharacteristically. And then Ed Harris, uh, my friend Ed Harris, who I think is the, one of the greatest actors in American cinema history, um, he, uh, he had just finished directing like a year and a half before. And Ed's a very intense guy, clearly, when you watch his characters. And he was like, I just can't do it. And, you know, he had a teenage daughter. And he said, but I want to be in it. So that was a great gift from him to be in it. Um, you know, it obviously raises the profile of the movie. So I didn't really seek to direct it. I just really wanted to play this part. Um, this character that I wrote, Billy McGriff, um, co-wrote with my friend Brian Curry, who actually went on after this to write Green Book and win all the Oscars. So I wish that would been the movie that I co-wrote with him. But, <laughs> but the, we had a great experience writing this one. We wrote another one that didn't get made. Um, so, but anyway, I wanted to play a character because I always think it's funny how Johnny Depp and Keanu Reeves and all these movie stars. Like, it's not enough to be a movie star. You also have to be a rock star. I just always thought that was so funny and stupid. You know, it's like, <laughs> dude, you can't, you can't have everything. You know, Derek Jeter's not trying to, you know, play for the Knicks. It's like, just relax. But so I always thought that was funny. So I wanted to make fun of, like, guys who play guitar who, you know, who do it to be cool. So that was the, the genesis of the character. And I just wanted to play that character. Now, what was it like casting your friends? And then what was it like directing them? Well, the, the hard part was uh, John McGinley's a really old friend of mine. Uh, you know, he's my daughter's godfather. He's, you know, he's a guy I've known since he was at NYU and I was there. Um, so I've known him forever. But I wrote the script with Brian, and so I knew the dialogue inside out. So sometimes when I'm doing a scene with John, he would say, you got to stop moving your lips. Like, apparently my lips would be moving during his lines. Like, I would be doing his lines silently in my head. So that was really... I was so embarrassed when he told me that because I thought, oh, my God, that means I'm not really acting as well as I could be, you know, off camera. So so it was tricky. I, I don't I don't really recommend it. I mean, it, it's like I see why Charlie Chaplin did it and, and, and people that play are playing a character they've played over and over again, like Spike Lee, when he directs himself, he tends to play a version of Spike Lee. And Woody Allen always played a version of Woody Allen that he's it's not like he's creating a new character. But when you're creating a new character, I think I think you need another set of eyes as a director. So I would, I think it's, it's hard to direct yourself. You know, I mean, Mel Gibson has been brilliant at it. I think he's one of the best directors alive. Uh, so there are exceptions to it. But for me, I, when I'm acting, it's almost sort of like, how I'm like, you know, playing with my toys and my finger paints or whatever. And directing is more like, okay, we got to stay on schedule. Everybody get in the car. You know, it's almost like you're the kid when you're an actor. And, and when you're the director, you're the dad or the mom. And, and it's, it's like a different mindset that doesn't, I feel a little too schizophrenic being both of those. Now, in the early parts of your career, when did you first start getting recognized? Do you remember when people started recognizing you? Uh, yeah, well, that was, uh, in Texas, it was shocking. After Lonesome Dove was on TV, I kind of instantly became a celebrity in Texas because Lonesome Dove was such a phenomenon. I mean, it, was a, it was a huge deal everywhere. It was on you know, CBS, obviously, and um, so everywhere people watched it. But because I had all this facial hair and stuff that I didn't keep in my regular life, Nobody would recognize me from Lonesome Dove except in Texas. I'd go into a bar in Texas. I loved going to Austin, Texas, and uh, I couldn't buy a beer in Texas for more than 10 years after that show was on TV. Either the bartender or some customer, because my character, Dish Boggett, got his name because he was so thirsty. He drank the dishwater in the book, and everybody in Texas has read the book, so they know that background, even though that's not in the miniseries. 
So I go into a bar or restaurant, I have a three beers plopped down on my table because people want to say they bought a beer for Dish. So, so that was really my first experience. And then when The Cutting Edge came out, um, not initially in theaters because it was it was it did okay in theaters, but it, it came out it missed its moment. It came out right after the 1992 Olympics, which was just the stupidest thing I ever thought of because that was the Olympics with uh, Tanya Harding and you know there was so much interest in figure skating right in that moment. And MGM had it ready. If we had come out in December before the February Olympics, I think it would have done 100 million dollars. But they didn't do that. So, but then on on VHS when it came out, everybody watched it. It, it just became one of those movies that everybody knew and. Everywhere I went, people would be saying Topic to me. you have any weird experiences? In terms of being recognized? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of times in that early period where people know they know you, but they don't know where they know you from, I had, a, I had one guy in a bar say to me, uh, uh, you know, he's looking at me, and I was just like, oh, here we go. And a lot of times I would never say I'm an actor because sometimes people don't believe you. But in this case, I didn't really want to talk to this guy, so he, he goes, where do I know you from? And I said, uh, well, I'm an actor, you know, I was in this Western Lonesome Dove, and I was in this other thing, and he shook his head, and he goes, no, Lompoc. And I was like, I had no idea what, he got up and left. I said to the bartender, what is Lompoc? <laughs> but that's the, that's the maximum security federal prison in California. I was like, oh, okay, so he, he feels like he saw me on the yard. I'm pretty sure I wasn't there, but I'm glad you're leaving. Now, in the late 2000s, you've been, you know, you've guested on a lot of shows. Um, what is your... You know, I mean, you were at Jericho, you were in a few episodes, you know, different shows. What is your experience? I, I always get different um, stories of actors' experiences. Sometimes they say it's just, it's like clockwork. Everyone's so accepting. You know, they say that about uh, Mark Harmon, you know, being on his show. It's just such an amazing feeling. What is What ones have you had a really good time on being a guest or being recurring? Well, a Two and a Half Men is one of the best experiences of my career, and the way it came about was so serendipitous. Uh, my son is a hockey player. Uh, at that time, we were living in Los Angeles. I live in Chicago now. We were living in Los Angeles, and my son was playing for the L.A. Junior Kings. And he would, you know, you're a hockey dad. You know, you go to the rink, and you, you hang around, and, and, you know, you're Canadian. I mean, you, you know hockey because of Philadelphia, and, you know, they, you know, it's a crazy hockey town. So hockey fans and hockey families are a little bit different. And, and, the, and so uh, I, I thought... The best thing for me to do for my son, since I'm an actor, is just to get away from all the other hockey moms and dads and just go stand by the Zamboni door and just just hide. So I was doing that this one particular season, and it was working great. I was standing there, and, and I noticed this other guy was standing next to me a lot, too, and he had on a Michigan uh, logo and his shirt a lot of times, and he just seemed like a normal guy. And the practice rink for the LA Kings, where our team played in practice, is right near the Toyota factory. It's right near Grumman. It's in El Segundo. It's in an area that's not really Hollywood. It's, it's like back to America. And so I figured this guy maybe works at Toyota or something. We started shooting the bull and making jokes and making each other laugh. After about three games, um, he says, Hey man, you're, you know, I think he knew I was an actor. I, I expected that, but I didn't, he didn't feel like he was in the business. So he said, you're funny. Have you ever thought about doing a sitcom? And I was like, I'd love to do a sitcom. I come from theater. That feels like the closest thing to theater. And I've never done it. And he said, well, I'm a writer on two and a half men. And I think that you'd be great. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, that's a nice compliment, but it's also the kind of thing that people say five times a day in L.A. and don't mean it. So I just kind of filed it away, and I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's great, I'd love to. Three years later, I've moved to Chicago with my family, and partly to pursue my son's hockey, and also just to get my family out of L.A., really. I get a call from this guy, Jim Patterson. He says, hey, D.B., it's Jim Patterson. You remember me? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, hey, what's going on? Uh, how's Aiden doing? His son, the player, you know, blah, blah, blah. He goes, hey, listen, I just got promoted. I'm the head writer on Two and a Half Men. How would you like to come do an episode? And I was like, what? I said, yeah, I'm in Chicago now. He's like, yeah, we'll fly you in, no problem. And I was like, it was unbelievable. So I go there, and, you know, it was a one-off type thing. They were going to see if it worked. So I sit down at this table read, which and in sitcoms is an amazing thing. I'd never seen this before, but it's like 100 people. You got all the actors around the table, all the writers in a row behind them. Behind them is the studio. Behind them is the network. I mean, there's just 100, 100 people listening to this reading of the script. And what I didn't know is that it's very important that you, that's not just reading the script, it's kind of a performance around a table. So John Cryer and I had done a play together, you know, 30 years earlier, 25 years earlier, and it was, it was a two-man play, and it was very successful. And so, but I hadn't stayed in touch with him at all. And, you know, we were just different circles. Before we started the read-through, John Cryer told a very funny story about when he and I took this play into a New York City high school because it had been an award-winning play, and it was like an outreach to kids who had never seen a play, and 
I won't give you the whole story, but anyway, it's a funny story with a funny punchline. And John told that right before the table read started of that first episode. And it was such a generous, cool thing to do because it was John Cryer saying to the room, hey, this is not just another guest star coming through in the 10th season. This is my guy. And it just changed the whole energy. And all my jokes were funny in the read-through and, and, and worked. And so I get back on the plane to Chicago. As soon as I landed, there's a call, hey, they want you back next week. It turned into 11 episodes, which was just unbelievable. The third episode, I come back in, and my character has his own set you know, on the, on, the, on the stage. I was like, holy shit, I should ask for a raise. <laughs> and uh, so I did, and they laughed at me. And uh, so, But anyways, because you know, they had already given all the money to Ashton Kutcher and, uh, and John Cryer. But it was a great experience, and that was an unbelievable set. There's been other sets I've been on where, you know, I mean, I guess it's still secret, but CSI Miami, David Caruso is, you know, he's a difficult person and he creates a bad environment. So a, a lot of times you go on these sets and they treat you like, you know, oh, you're a guest. Sometimes somebody, they'll be like, oh my God, you're in my favorite movie. You know, they, they act nice to you. But a lot of other times they treat you like, you know, you're just like a piece of furniture, like you're passing through. You're not one of the core people. We don't have to really respect you or do anything for you. And, so I kind of go in expecting that and then allow myself to be surprised when people are more respectful and professional and, you know, treat you more like based on your accomplishments than the fact that you're only doing one episode. Now, you're also uh, a few episodes of Major Crimes. Is that because you knew Joe or how did that come about? Yeah, well, that one of the series that I did that we did a year on called C-16 FBI, which was really a, a fun show. I launched uh, Angie Harmon and we had Morris Chestnut and Zach Grenier and Christine Tucci. And unfortunately, we also had Eric Roberts who was determined to kill the show and it worked. So, uh, so that show didn't go, but the, the creator of that show, uh, Mike Robin, um, was also the, the executive producer on major crimes. And he and I, you know, we became golfing buddies and after C16 and just a great, great guy. And he brought me back to do major crimes because Kira and I had worked Kira Cedric and I had worked together. And so that was kind of like a really weird thing because I, I was pretty busy. So they'd call and I'd come back when I could. And I ended up, I think I did three episodes of the show or two, whatever it was, but they were spread out over a period of like the, from the second year to the eighth year or whatever it was. But I loved playing that character. It was a very professional set. Some great actors in that show. You know, I love Tony Dennison and, uh, you know, just a great, great group of people. So I, I really enjoyed being a part of that. Now, have you wanted to get back into the sitcom uh, field? I would love to do a sitcom. Um, but like stand-up comedy is the hardest form of live performance, I think sitcoms are the hardest form of storytelling because it's such a fragile thing. I mean, you look at the ones that work and you're like, why does it work? You look at Seinfeld and you know, that show, I, if you watch the first episode of Seinfeld, it's like, it doesn't have it yet. It's not really there. And then they made a couple of little adjustments and then it's Seinfeld and it's unbelievable. It didn't take them very long to figure it out, but they didn't have it at the beginning. And Jerry Seinfeld's awkward and there's a lot of, and it's interesting, but then it, it they, once they found their stride and they knew what the show was and the writers knew how to write for it, it just became unbelievable. And, you know, Two and a Half Men, and I have to say, in the heyday with Charlie Sheen before I got there, I mean, that show was just firing on all cylinders. And I think it was still good with Ashton Kutcher, but it just didn't have that special sauce. It was just John Cryer was kind of making it work through his enormous gifts as a performer. He just kept that thing going. And, uh, you know, so I realize how hard it is, but that the Honeymooners, All in the Family, I mean, you watch those things and it's just like, I don't know, it's just the artistry is, is incredible. But as an actor, I would love to do a sitcom just because you're in front of an audience. They frown on anything more than two or three takes, which I think if you can't get it two or three takes, you're probably never going to get it. So let's just move on. And the, and the writing is, is such a priority in sitcoms that... You know, they, they really focus on it, and they really, they really work it. So, yeah, I would love to. that be my dream, is to get on another sitcom. Now, there was a miniseries you played, uh, James Longstreet. It was a Civil War-type thing. What is that like when you go on a set like that? Because you know the costumes are going to be hot. I mean, it's just a given, because everything was wool back then. What was your experience with playing it, once again, be playing someone who was real life? Well, that, unfortunately, that show fell apart right as we were getting ready to film it. I don't know why that's still on there. We never ended up making it, but I had researched the heck out of that thing, and I was so excited to play Longstreet because he's, you know, he's a, he's a, a really interesting historical character. It's not really, his story hasn't really been told. Um, he wasn't the, main, the only character in that. Show. It was all about the Civil War, but... Um, but yeah, I, that thing fell apart. The money got pulled out at the last minute, and we didn't get to do it. It may happen someday, but but I'm ready to play Longstreet because uh, you know he's a guy. He's not part of that Virginia mafia that that formed the Confederate Army. Uh, he's an outsider. He's from Georgia, and he, it's just interesting. He, he's interesting on a lot of levels. His kids had all died 
from uh, smallpox and he's grieving and he was uh, like the grouchy uh, counterpoint to Robert E. Lee. So it's a great part and I hope I get to play it someday. Now you also, you know, you do some voiceover work. Uh, what's the latest voiceover work you've done or narration? Well, I, well I'm really uh, excited that we just started the, uh, geez, I think it's the ninth season of Mountain Men and Mountain Men is on the History Channel and it's about these guys who live off the grid uh, in Montana and Alaska and there's one guy in North Carolina and these characters, they're real. I mean, obviously now they're filming, they're getting paid to be on this show, but not, I don't think they're getting paid a lot. They're really eccentric characters who they have just turned their back. They don't like the modern world. They don't like society. Most of them don't even like people that much. And they just live off the land and they do what they do to survive. It's just a fascinating escapist show. And so I've, I've done the first two episodes of the new season. It's going to premiere in about six weeks. On, uh, on history, but there's, I think there's eight seasons that we've already done that are over 110 episodes. It's just such a cool show if anybody hasn't seen it. If that kind of thing sounds good, if you like Deadliest Catch, if you like, you know, Ice Road Truckers, it's, it's in that world. And so for me, as a narrator, they brought me in and, and, and uh, they asked, what, what, how would you do this? And I thought, well, I think the narrator on this show shouldn't be like some, you know, distant voice. I think he should feel like the fifth mountain man. So I kind of put on this voice that works for the show and it's sort of like uh, <laughs> I'll do a bad version of it now because I don't have the script it'll be something like uh, 6,000 feet up in the Sawtooth Mountains <laughs> night falls you know it's like it, it's kind of an exaggerated pushed voice that it just really works for that show and the audience loves it and so uh, it's a, one of the biggest hits on History Channel so I've been uh, really happy to be a part of that now you said you moved to Chicago on uh, hockey, but do you miss LA at all? Or I mean, what do you miss? What do you? Because Chicago is such a great city. I mean, what are the pros and cons for you? Uh, well, the amazing thing I learned when I came to Illinois that I didn't know is I, I think it's the third uh, biggest Hispanic population in America. So I don't understand why they don't know how to make Mexican food here. Yeah. Like California Mexican food is so much better; it's ridiculous. So there's the Mexican food that I miss. There's sushi, which is unbelievably good everywhere you go in California. Um, and, and those two kinds of restaurants are so competitive. If you're not good in California and those two genres, you're going to go out of business quickly because there's so many people that are. So those two things are, are have been an adjustment for me. And also this deep dish pizza thing. Um, it's, it's really not pizza. It's really not quiche. It's really not lasagna. It doesn't know what it is, but you can. I don't want any. And so that's a problem. Other than that, I like everything about Chicago better than what I liked about L.A., except I love going to the beach, but we have a beach here, you know, Lake Michigan. So uh, the, the weather's nicer in L.A., uh, the traffic's bad, everybody's either in show business or trying to be in show business. Um, people make no bones about it. If, if you're talking to me at a coffee shop and you see somebody more famous behind me, you won't even make any uh, attempt to conceal the fact that you're trying to figure out how to get rid of me so you can talk to the other person who's more famous. It's crazy, so, I know. <laughs> so, so that's the part of it that I don't miss at all. I, it's definitely been harder on my career because, you know, when you go to that Starbucks or whatever, you might bump into a, another actor or a writer and who hadn't been thinking of you, and, and they're like, hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? So much of, you know, my experience having a 30-plus year career is if you wait for your agents to find you a job, you're going to be unemployed. So I, most of my jobs come out of my relationships and just trying to stay in touch with people that I've worked with and trying to make things happen, you know, on my own. So I do miss that network aspect of L.A., but that's about it. Now, do you do any theater in Chicago? Well, I thought it was going to be a lot easier than it is. Um, when I first moved here, obviously I jumped right. I, I, the first week I got here, they would, I started doing Two and a Half Men almost immediately. So that took me out of that. But the thing about theater is that, um, you know, as a 50-year-old white male, uh, they don't really do a lot of plays about those guys anymore. I mean, there's less and less of that guy on TV and in movies to begin with, which, you know, it is what it is. Um, I can always find something there. But in theater, it, the diversity thing is, like, to another level. So they don't really do, you know, they don't really do a show about, you know, they don't do Death of a Salesman unless they do it with an African-American cast or an Asian cast or, you know. And so they're so interested in, in presenting other viewpoints and other voices that it, there really aren't that many plays. And the companies, the really good companies like Steppenwolf, they have their members who are my age, who, you know, white guys, who if they don't want to do a part, there's four or five guys, Kevin Anderson and, you know, Terry Kinney and a bunch of guys, if they're not going to do the part, the theater won't do the play. So, so that theater is kind of off the map for me. And then, I mean, it could happen if somebody drops out, I guess. And, and then the Goodman Theater is uh, they do tremendous work too, but it's kind of the same thing. I mean, there's 
there's not that many parts, and they have the guys that they use. So I, I haven't given up on it. Um, Victory Gardens is a place I've talked to them about doing something there, and there's there's been a couple other theaters and opportunities, but it's it, it's not as easy as I thought because I did a ton of theater in New York, and then I did five or six plays in L.A. L.A. is problematic because there's no audience. Like even if you're doing a great great play with a great cast, which was the case for me a couple times, you can't get people to get out of their house to go to a theater. They'd rather they'd rather go to a third rate screening of a movie they know is going to be bad than go to a theater. It's it's a weird psychology. Another thing that I Kind of don't like about LA. Well, you're doing. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Two dumb mix is premieres tonight at is that seven p.m. Eastern or Pacific? Seven o'clock Eastern. And uh, if you go to Facebook.com/slash Two Dumb Mix, no B in the dumb, or if you just Google Two Dumb Mix Facebook, it'll come up for you. And seven o'clock, we're gonna have a Q and A with me and Sean afterwards. And uh, if you miss it tonight, it'll be on YouTube. Once again, YouTube. Uh, just search Two Dumb Mix or my name and my page will come up and you'll see it there. And please, I'm so sorry about that. Um, but please, if everybody could just share with their friends, Sean and I want to do more episodes. And if there's a demand, if there's a lot of eyeballs, we will. And if there isn't, we probably won't. But uh, so as many people as we can get to see it uh, tonight and in the coming days and weeks, uh, it's, a, it's a really uh, a fun little thing. It's, it's harmless comedy. I think everybody in the middle of this uh, epidemic needs, uh, needs a laugh. So, Everybody in the family can watch it. There's a couple of naughty words, but there's no sexual content. It's it's uh, it's family friendly to the extent that anything is these days. Great. Well, you know, people go to the website. There's also a website too, Dumb Mix with no B. Go there. dot com. You can read all about it. You can read about DB and Sean, and it's just great. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. I tried to click on it the uh, last night. It said YouTube. It said. <laughs> premieres Wednesdays. I said, oh, okay. So people, go oh, check sorry. it out. sorry. I should have sent it to you. My, uh, my mistake. I that's fine. No, that's fine. You. People, go check them out. And go check out, go on IMDb and check out DB's uh, long list of uh, movies and go back and some watch some of them. So also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 785 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. And Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.